0: And welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkandstuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jiggs Goldfein, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued support and interest in the program. My guest for this episode is jazz, R&B, funk and Latin percussionist and multi-instrumentalist Bill Summers. Summers first forged his impeccable reputation as a leading-edge player by capturing the fancy of jazz keyboard legend Herbie Hancock, who placed Summers as a founding member of his Headhunters lineup that unleashed a string of groundbreaking electronic jazz funk albums during the 1970s. That includes such landmark tracks as Chameleon, Actual Proof and Hang Up Your Hang-ups. That last one from my All-time favorite from Herbie, and one of my all-time favorite albums ever, is 1975's Manchild. Future P-Funk guitarist Blackbird McKnight was also a member of the Headhunters, which released its own albums and recorded masterful tracks like God Made Me Funky. While Summers continued to record with Hancock, including later funk classics like Ready or Not, he ventured out to release four albums under his own name. Then in 1981, he hit it big as Bill Summers and Summer's Heat, with the album and slamming title track call it what you want that band wound up releasing four albums and placing seven songs on the US R&B chart. At the same time in the 1970s and throughout the 80s Summers added his hand drums expertise to projects by Quincy Jones, Stevie Wonder, The Bar Keys, Confunction, Stanley Clark, The Pointer Sisters, Bobby Womack, Lenny Williams, and Patrice Russian. In the late 1990s he established a popular Latin jazz trio Los Hombres Calientes, and he still continues to perform today. In this interview, the energetic and talkative Summers takes us on a cultural and musical excursion chock full of nuggets of percussion, jazz, and funk. His fanciful stories demonstrate that 45 years into an astonishing career, Summers can still bring the heat. So now, let's fire it up with Bill Summers. Hey, I'm delighted to welcome to Truth and Rhythm jazz, R&B, funk, and Latin percussionist and multi-instrumentalist Bill Summers. Among his nearly five decades of credits are working with Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters, Quincy Jones, Stevie Wonder, The Bar Can Confunction, Stanley Clark, his own solo albums and those with his bands, Summers Heat, and Los Hombres Calientes. Calientes. Calientes,
1: Calientes. Calientes. yeah.
0: Bill, how the heck are
1: you? I am uh, I'm too blessed to be stressed. I'm, as my good friend says, I'm too anointed to be disappointed. I'm good. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. I'll stay happy. Happy, happy.
0: Excellent. You're coming to us from uh, Louisiana. Whereabouts?
1: Well, I'm sitting uh, in my office studio in um, in an area called Uptown New Orleans near Napoleon Avenue and Ferret Street, which is a bustling little street that um, due to gentrification, regentrification, has popped up as, as the hot spot, <laughs> you know. Unfortunately, they, they're they moving out the indigenous inhabitants to do it. Mm. But it's, 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 I, I enjoy it. I've been at the spot for a while, and I have some property in the country that I spend time at. So, so you're keeping the riffraff out? No, I bring the riffraff in. That's what <laughs> I'm with. The so-called riffraff, those are my people. Uh, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm a grassroots kind of guy. I'm a Malcolm X kind of guy. I'm, I'm down to the lumping proletariat. I'm dealing yeah. with common man. Uh, that's my friend.
0: So you're from that area originally?
1: Well, that's that's a loaded question. Uh, I would say, yeah, very much so. Just through just through lineage, I was raised in Detroit. My my family left this area. To escape Jim Crow uh, you may know him he's uh he's he's not a nice guy yeah. so uh, you know he he made night nightly visits you know to certain people Sometimes he even came with you know with a cross <laughs> you know it wasn't to bless people either so uh, yeah I mean and then but but my heritage is here my home this is my home because my great 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 Grandfather came here on my on my father's side from Europe, so that's it's. I have a European side, I have an African side, and I have a Native American side, and I and I recognize actually my uh, my great great listen. This is a great great great. My great 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 uncle, who was a brother to my to my great great grandfather, he was a signer of the Confederate Constitution. Wow. So that's a lot of that's a lot of history. That means a lot. And and they had um actually on the plantation that my father's side of the family came from, uh, they owned six hundred slaves. And my great great grandmother was one of them. And she had seven children by my great great grandfather, George Kennedy, who decided he wanted to get married to someone who was of someone who was not of of color. And uh So he had to get rid of his black family, so he sold his interest in the the plantation, which is the Belle Helene Plantation in Geismar, Louisiana. He sold his interest in the plantation to his brother Duncan, who was my great-great-uncle. And so he sold it, literally sold his family to his brother. And uh, my great-great-grandmother had stashed enough money to buy her freedom. And she also bought the freedom of several of her children. Not all of them, because she was pregnant with the seventh when she left. And uh he was supposed to George Kendall was supposed to give her what was called at the time her freedom, her free papers. But he didn't even do that. And she left and moved to St. Louis. And uh her and her son Alexander, who is my great uncle, um he helped her start a business. I mean, he was very good with figures. And uh, so she started a business, which was a, 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 clo- a, a cleaning clothes, actually, laundry business. And she became very wealthy. And she would come back when she'd have enough money to buy another one of her kids back, one by one. Mm-hmm. And um, she actually, um, my namesake is Bill Kenner. He was the last, it was the last of the enslaved fa- people on my family side that uh, gained his freedom. Well, at least she came back to buy his freedom, and uh, Duncan said he wouldn't sell him for the same price as the other kids, which was about eighteen hundred to two thousand dollars. I guess that would equate to an eighteen something, eighteen back in the eighteen fifties and sixties. That would be a lot of money. So, um, uh, she he said he would he would he would keep Bill for three years at fifteen dollars a month to make up the difference. And she died before she left him. No, She left him no deposit, though, but she died before he, he was free. And uh, when she died, Duncan went to St. Louis and claimed her estate and brought all the kids back into slavery. But Alexander was a smart guy. Plus, he was a mulatto. He was half white and half black. Yeah, he got a little privilege there. You know what I'm saying? The darker you were, the worse your situation. But he got a little there. Yeah, and he... he at, but believe it or not slaves at the time had rights and 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 they could sue. and he sued his uncle and he won he won his mother's estate back he freed his brother bill and bill said I can't go nowhere and he said well why not he said well I got about 15 kids and you know I, I, they i I'm, build, I'm building a church you know <laughs> so he said, I can't go nowhere plus I'm making he was a, he was a he was a trainer of racehorses. Duncan Kenner had uh the largest thoroughbred race stable in the country. In fact, one of the, one of the black jockeys that was a friend of my great great my great grandfather Bill won the Preakness. And most of the jockeys back in that day were black. You know, you know how the jockeys sit up off the seat. You know, at a certain point they get their rate raised up off the seat. Black jockeys created that that style. So anyway, that's just a story. So that's why I'm so tired. Louisiana there it is I Uh mean I have uh, I still occupy the property that my grandmother who was one generation from slavery I almost still on that property it's sacred land
0: how how do you know so much of that history it's like uh, ancestry.com
1: well here's the thing about it is in my family history is important so these stories have, have have come down from from uh, generation to generation. We all know the story, all of us, everybody in the family. My brother is, he knows it as well or better than I do. So I visit the plantation, that same plantation that is called the Ashland. You know, I I developed a relationship with Shell Oil Company because they bought this property and they uh, refurbished it. They, you know, they brought it back to its original luster and glory. So they they painstakingly put it back together as exactly as it was when it was built. So I go out there and I and they and and they called me out there one day because the African American Museum here let them know that there was a there was a descendant still alive and well and living in New Orleans of these of this kennel kind of family. So I actually represented the family. With a PBS special that was about these antebellum plantations and homes, and, and I gave the black side of the story. I suppose to the other way around, you know, because they, you very seldom have family of the enslaved that can even talk about it, what what their what their family went through, or, or what it was like. So I spend time there. I, I do summer camps for kids there at the same and the, at the plantation where my family came from so well, i try to think, I try to change the poison into medicine you know
0: is is that program online do you know
1: I'm sure it is i I'd have to find out the name of it, but I'm sure that I've heard that it was on four hundred p b s stations so yeah. that was some years ago, but I heard people even recently have told me they saw it you know they i guess it gets aired periodically i don't even i've never seen it I don't even know the name of it oh okay,
0: well, we'll have to follow up on that because i I'd be interested in seeing it too,
1: yeah. Well,
0: that's a fascinating story, Bill. Wow. So, how how did you uh, first get into music?
1: I think I was in my mother's stomach, <laughs> Oh, somewhere around their stomach, not stomach, <laughs> in the womb. I, I, I You know, it's hard. You know, I think uh, my grand my grandmother was a piano teacher, and. Music was always a focal point in my family. Um, My my parents decided when my brother and I were five and six, I was five, he was six, they decided to put us into a conservatory. So I played classical piano for 10 years in the conservatory. Mm -hmm. I hated every minute of it. (laughs) It wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to play drums and my father you know, they they have been convinced by the um, administration at the conservatory that the the best foundation for a music, for someone who wanted to play music, not that they wanted me to become a musician. They just liked the discipline of it. And they were music lovers. And my family were, everybody in the family was music lovers. So it, it just, my grandmother was a music teacher. So there it is. We it kind of followed suit and we followed suit. And I had no idea that I would actually become a musician. It was the furthest thing from my mind, believe me. And um, so at one point, um, after many years, I, I remember this one incident that kind of changed my life in terms of the conservatory. Uh, at the same time that I was playing Chopin and Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and metal, Nelson and Churney and exercises, arpeggios, uh, I was listening to The Lonious Monk. I was listening to Ray Charles. I was listening to Aretha Franklin. I was listening to Sidney Poitier. I was hearing music from Cuba, Allegre All-Stars from New York. Uh, the, yeah, the first record I ever bought when I was nine was Thelon- Thelonious Monk, Monk Mysterioso. That, that was my first music purchase. Mm. So, you know, I was pretty deep into it. You know, my brother and I, we played classical music, but on the side, we would play, we, we'd get sheet music. It's back in that time, Sheet music was popular. You know, you go down to the to the music store where they sold musical instruments and blah blah blah, and they would have a big section on with sheet music of popular songs of that particular period, or that particular month or story. You know what I'm saying? It would it would be like the hits. Mm-hmm. So I'd go and pick up some music, and I remember this was a life altering event. I picked up a piece of music called One Mint Julep. It was by Ray Charles. It was a single. It had no singing on it. He didn't sing one word. It was bum <singing> bum something like that. And I just liked it. I fell in love with it. So I bought the sheet music. And you know, buying a piece of sheet music, if you paid fifty cents for it and you were nine years old, eleven, well that's that was that was a big chunk. My 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 biggest Uh, What do you call it? uh, uh, What do you call it when someone your parents give you uh, allowance? An allowance, right? It my my, mine went up to a a dollar twenty-five. That's as high as it got for the week. A dollar twenty-five. My father was not giving any more than a dollar twenty. So if if I spent fifty (laughs) cents on a piece of sheet music, that was a major dent, you know. Fortunately, I had a paper route when I was 12 and 13, so I bought this music with money I was earning. And so I took the music, I took the sheet music to the conservatory, to my piano teacher, and, and uh, her name was Frances Taper. And I said, I wanna play this. I showed it to her, I said, I said, wow, I wanna, can I, can I, can I play this? Can you, can you help me play this? And she looked at it, and um, she, she had it in her hand, and she folded it in half. Then she folded it again. And then she handed, it, handed me this little square back. And she said, when you finish learning what I teach you, then you have time for that stuff. Oh, what's well, it? I was mad as hell. She didn't know it, but she didn't know that a a fourteen, fifteen year old could really process what she had just said. But my parents were civil rights activists and I just saw racism in it. I just, I was red inside and out. And that was when I quit going, to the conservatory and following my own dreams. And Bob bought me a set of bongos. You people say bongos, but they're really bongo. And I bought a set of bongo. And uh, I started playing with a, with a guy in the neighborhood. And his name was Jeff, Jeffrey. I don't even know his last name, but he was a major influence. I can't tell you his name, his last name. But he played and he could really play. And he had learned a rhythm called martillo, which is a specific pattern you that you play on bongos and it's called and martillo is hammer in spanish so that this rhythm was called the hammer <laughs> so you know like you're like an MC, you know MC hammer well, i'm hammering these bongos bam pop, and i'm learning how to play it correctly it's a specific rhythm so i fell in love with that i mean i'm, I'm a rhythm person i that was my, my introduction it was my introduction to rhythm my first actually the thing that another thing that which is really funny really funny that influenced me was I Love Lucy, Ricky Ricardo, and uh-huh. Lucille Ball. In the beginning of the show, they have this thing going, and there's some music bubbling in the background that was killing me. I would, watch, I would only watch I Love Lucy to hear the beginning and the end of the music, and the beginning and at the end, that was it. So if you pay attention, then then also Ricky would do something and say something that I couldn't figure out. He would say, Baba Lu, Baba Lu, and he had a drum he played. He couldn't play work for damn, but he played, he had a thing, he'd be hitting on it, blah, 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 blah. And Baba Lou. And I'd say, Well, dude, what the hell is Baba Lou? You know, that really, really, really intrigued me. I mean, this what is this word? I'd ask some. Spanish guy or some Latino, you know, what is Babalu? And they couldn't tell me. Well, obviously it ain't Spanish, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? So with further investigation and study, I found out Babalu is African. Mm -hmm. Now, why is Ricky singing these African words? How did that happen? So that took me on a whole new quest into African music. You know, I said, "Well, wow! If he's singing Baba Lu, now what does that mean?" So I investigated. Baba in Yoruba, which is a West African language from Nigeria, Southeast Nigeria, is it's a language, and uh, Baba means father, as it does in India and other places. Now, Baba Lu, they cut it short when he says Baba Lu. It's Baba Lu Ayé. That's the whole word. So I got Baba, father. O Lu means chief or owner. IA is the world. So chief, owner, father of the world. Now then I want to find out, what I need to know more about Babalu. So I found out they have rhythms for Babalu. They have songs for Babalu. And then I found out that there were special drums that they played for all of these different types of African saints. They have rhythms for everything. And they play them on bata. Which are three specific drums that are double-headed. They come from Africa. I didn't. Then I realized that since Ricky came from Cuba, or Cuba, as people say in America, um, I I looked and saw if to find out if if there if there was any mention of Babalu in their society. Found out. Oh, that was the that was just the tip of the iceberg. I found out that there were so many types of. These saints that are still recognized on the island of Cuba that I just that that just changed my life because now I have found out that that we had our own Tchaikovskys and that we had our own Mendelssohns and Brahms and Tchaikovskys. They just nobody knew who they were though. You know, what I'm saying they weren't being publicized because they were playing African drums and African instruments and being enslaved in the Americas. You're not getting no play like that. You're not getting no press. You know what I'm saying? You're getting depressed of anything. So uh, that's kind of like my beginning into the world of percussion.
0: Um, all right, so that got you into percussion. And when did you uh, start sort of uh, playing with bands and start to kind of know that you wanted to be a professional?
1: Well, here's the thing. There's part of the story I didn't tell you, and I think it's really important. that is, I told you that I like percussion, but I also liked flute and saxophone. So when I I was able to, um, you know, I told my father, you know, like I said, they bought a piano. So they weren't really interested in investing more money into some kind of musical instruments. And, but, so what happened one day, I really want, I loved, I wanted to play woodwinds. I like flute and sax. And so I was asking my dad, I said, Dad, can I get a, can I get, a, can we get a flute at least? He said, well, I don't know, son. I don't think so. <clears throat> so my father had a shop. He was a jack of all trades. He had a shop in the basement with a lot of tools and vices and pipe cutting, pipe cutting, all kinds of stuff. He was a, Like I said, he, he could fix anything. So I made a flute out of a piece of pipe, some cork, and drilled some holes in the pipe. And he came off from work to, uh, one day, and I was playing this pipe. And he looked at me and said, son, let's go to the store and buy you a flute. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it happened that's exactly how it happened and so I started playing flute and I was so into playing this flute uh, I, I actually bought he, he actually bought me a saxophone because I got so into it you could see I was so serious about it and he said okay let's go get the saxophone so I got the saxophone I got an alto then then he bought me a tenor then I got a piccolo then I got a, 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 a alto flute and my dad invested a lot of money into me doing this because he could see I was serious. I didn't go out to the house for a year. I didn't play with my friends. I didn't go to the parties. I didn't do nothing but play those instruments. And I accumulated, accumulated those sacks over about a period of about three years and, you know, after he saw how serious I was. So I learned really my first instrument that I made money on was as a flautist. And I got hired by a guy named Nimrod Lumpkin, who was uh, an organ player in Detroit. He was the best organ player I have ever seen in my life and still to this day. I, I don't think Jimmy Smith could touch him. This guy was so good. He was so good. He was playing organ in his church when he was five years old. He was a prodigy. So one day we went to school together. He was a great ahead of me. And he heard me play one day, and he said, why don't you come sit in with me at the club? And I was 15 to 16 years old. And I said, play <laughs> at the club? So, of course, I got to go and ask my father, can I, I go to the nightclub? I'm 15. Can I go and play in the nightclub? Yes, son, you can go. He trusted me. So I went to the club religiously every weekend to play with Rod Lumpkin. And he was the first one to pay me some money. So after that, I'll tell you what happened. This is really, this was crucial too in, in my career. Oh, I, I wouldn't have a career if this this one thing didn't happen. And that was when I was a senior in high school and um, and this was shortly after I started playing with uh, with, with Rod Lumpkin, I was making money and I was going to school. And uh, so at any rate, it was time to graduate. I transferred from one school to another. <clears throat> And I lost some credit, I lost some, uh, like a unit, and, and because they didn't give me all the credits from the other school. I didn't know that, so in my senior year, it came time to take class pictures, they didn't call my name. And I, that meant, well, <clears throat> something's wrong. I went to the office, and said, well, we can't let you graduate, you're short. I said, well, can I make it up? I mean, I'm gonna graduate with my class, can I do anything? They said no, I mean, to my face like no. I'm like, well, can't, can't, would you even consider, no. So I quit. That day I I quit high school in the 12th grade. Mm -hmm. And I went home and my father was really proud, man. He wanted me to go to college, all of that. And I came in the house and I said, I said, pops, I'm through. I quit. And he was reading the newspaper and he didn't say one word. He said, okay. That's all he said. Okay. So I quit and I got a job at Ford Motor Company on the assembly line. So now I'm playing music at night. I'm working the assembly line in the daytime. And I realized slavery was Ford Motor Company. That was that that assembly plant was just like being a slave, It was no different. I, there were white people there, there were Russians, Italians, Mexicans. <laughs> we were all slaves. <laughs> and you go in, in the in the morning, it would be dark. And when I get out in the afternoon, in the day, in the end of the day, it would be dark and all i could remember in my brain was <laughs> you know and the smell of oil and you know it's just terrible mm-hmm. so i quit the job and i got a new job at the racetrack at D- drc detroit race course as a busboy on the in the in the uh, clubhouse they call it that's where all the rich people go and they eat and they can watch their horses horse races in a covered environment each day and lobster and, and so I was a busboy. I, I had to be at work at 11 o'clock in the morning. So that means at night I'm playing music. I got a job that doesn't let me that I don't have to go till 2-11 and the first thing we do when we get to the job is eat lunch. That's the first thing we do, you know, which is killing. Then, then I watch 10 horse races and clear tables and make tips. So one day, I'll make this, this long story short, one day I, there was a black guy that shined shoes in the bathroom. And as, a, as an employee, I couldn't bet on horses. You can't do it. So I found out that this guy would take bets for the employees. I'd go and check with, meet with him. He'd be shining shoes, okay? White folks shining, black, just shining, nation. yes boss, yeah boss. Look, this guy was a millionaire and I didn't know it. Wow. Nobody knew it. You know, he was, he was filthy rich. And uh, so I would place a bet. So this day, I placed a, what's called a daily double. You have to win two horse races in, in the, in the, in the, during the day, a race four, race eight or whatever. You gotta, gotta get both of them. Well, that day was my lucky day. I won the daily double. I threw 50 dishes up in the air. I flipped everybody off. I went and got my money. And I got two, I got a round trip ticket to California. And when I got off the plane to San Francisco, I thought everything was Disneyland. The whole thing looked like Disneyland to me. I'm saying, wow. How old were you Bill?
0: 18, 17, 18.
1: So I got up sitting there. This is really, you you have no idea what this meant. When I got off the plane, I went and stayed with some family uh, uh, members from, from Louisiana, from Donaldsonville, Louisiana, Uncle Boo and Auntie Frankie. And my Uncle Boo was a good guy. And he said, you know, Bill, and, I, you know, I played, I was playing saxophone, practicing all the time. And he was really happy with me being there with him. He said, you know, you could, if you were a resident of, of California, you could get into school. You could go to, you could get, get into a junior college. I said, free? What are, you, are you serious? So I took a test. I went to a place called Merritt College and took a test. They accepted me. I mean, my father was ecstatic. He was so proud that, that I did what I said I was going to do. What, what is interesting, and I take you back, is that when he, I came and I quit, school, quit high school in the 12th grade, he didn't say nothing. Six months later, he said, son, if you, he said, I wasn't, really wasn't worried about you. He said, I have a third grade education, and I run the plan. I draw the blueprints for the furnaces. I put them in. He said, if you had a cure for cancer, they wouldn't care if you had a degree or not. So that just, blam. That's that's the words of wisdom to me. I said, okay, dad, I got you. So I got in. I had a great grade point average. I I applied for UC Berkeley, one of the most prestigious schools on the planet. I got accepted. That's where I met Herbie Hancock. (laughs) Hey, man, come on. If I didn't quit school, if I hadn't went to Ford, if I hadn't done the DRC, the racetrack thing, I wouldn't have won the ticket. I wouldn't have gotten to Northern California. I would have never gotten to Mary College, and I would have never been accepted to UC Berkeley. One day, I was at UC Berkeley. I was a, I was the only undergraduate TA in the music department. You have to be a graduate student to be a TA. I was, I was the only one there ever accepted as a TA. I was undergrad. I had an independent major in African music and, um, you know, basically an ethnomusicology. And I had to set up my own curriculum with my advisor who was a guy named Ollie Wilson. And um, and uh, so my senior, it was like, I guess it was maybe my senior year in college, Herbie came to the campus to open the new Arts Institute Museum, some kind of museum or something on campus. And my, my group opened for him. And my group just did ethnic music. We did Brazilian, traditional, candomblé, uh, macumba. Then we did Haitian voodoo drumming and singing and uh, Cuban stuff and just all kinds of, like, you know, the stuff that I was studying. And after the show, Herbie came to me. I didn't go to him. He came over to me and said, man, wow, that was interesting. Would you like to come and sit in with my band? Well, hell yeah! <laughs> are you kidding? are you kidding? I mean, I'm like, oh wow! I'm like, wow! So, uh I, 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 I packed. You know, that night I was so excited, man. I, uh, you know, I packed up a little duffel bag full of, you know, hand percussion. Don't call them toys; I will get mad. I have some hand percussion. Bill, it's just like
0: 1972? this like 1972.
1: This was this was 71. 72, 71, somewhere in 7172. 72. And uh, yeah, right, somewhere into 70, somewhere around in there. I don't, I can't, I can't pinpoint it. But um, uh, I, um, I took a, a bag of instruments to the, to the club in San Francisco. I had a couple of conga drums and a bag with some percussion instruments. I, I came in the club and I put the bag with the instruments on the side of the stage. I didn't put them on the stage, I put them on the side because I wasn't that presumptuous or that rude of a musician. Because I, I, knew, the, I knew the game. I knew, how, I knew what was going on. I knew what to do. And I knew what not to do. So now here comes Herbie. I'm already there an hour or more behind. I'm all excited. It's Christmas to me. So Herbie walks in. There may have been three or four people in the club. This was an hour and a half before the, before the show. And he walks in and he glances over to the right as he's going to the dressing room and he sees my stuff. He says, what's all this shh? You can, you know what I'm saying, what word I'm using. He said, what's all this sh, SH over here? And I heard him. I heard what he said. He went to the dress room. I, put, I went over to my instruments and picked him up and I left. I didn't sit in with him. Hmm. Six months later, six months or more, whenever, six months later, he comes to do a lecture in the music department for the professor that I'm the TA for. I have to meet Herbie and pick him up and bring him to the class in a car. I pick him up and you know he said, well, you know, do we know each other? And I'm like, I'm already like, yeah, you know, you, you ain't, you ain't, I'm not really interested in your, in your gap or anything you have to say. I'm not, I'm, I was just, I had shut down on him. So he kept, he was persistent and then eventually we talked and, and I told him what happened. He said, did I did that? He said, I did that? I said, well, that's what happened he said i did that i said yeah you did that he said well would you like to come and sit in with me tonight <laughs> so i did and and uh, from that point on we struck up a really great friendship really good it was, you know i didn't know what he was looking for i didn't know if i didn't know what he was doing but i was being auditioned i didn't even know it i really didn't know it and he went he, he i took him to basements to meet, I took him to meet young musicians in the Bay Area, which I introduced him to many. I don't know what he what he was trying to do, but we'd go to rehearsals to like people's rehearsals, and he met a lot of people. And uh, a few months later, I, I I sat in with him a couple of more times with Buster Williams, and uh, Julian Priester, and uh, uh, Eddie Henderson. Now that, that was the band he had: Pat Gleason and. Those are the people that I, I be, began to go around, Herbie. So I wouldn't say I didn't get paid, though. But that's what you had to do. You had to do stuff like that, especially with someone like Herbie. Pay your dues. Pay your dues. Go in, shut, shut up, sit down, listen, and hopefully you'll be around for something else. So one day I get a call on the phone, and Herbie says, Bill, I'd like you to come to L.A. and play with me on a concert, and and I'm going to pay you. Oh, What? <laughs> Okay, now we're getting somewhere. So he uh, he uh, he sends a ticket. He got his management sends me a ticket. He tells me what to, to bring my instruments, what to bring, and uh, you know the SIR they came to pick my instruments up and ship them out. And I get to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium the day of this concert, and uh, I walk in, and nobody's there but me. You know that that's a, that's in the band. And uh, then I see some instruments on the stage. There was a harp and uh, a, a, a grand piano, and then my percussion. And I'm waiting for the rest of the band to get there to load in. And Herbie pops up and he bounces over and he's he's a jo- he's a you know he's a happy kind of guy. He comes up. Oh, hey Bill, hi. They say, what's up, Herbie? Hi. And I said, well, Herbie, where's the rest of the band? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't see any instruments up here. It's just a harp and a piano. He said, that's it. It's me, you, and Alice Coltrane. That was my first real, real gig with Herbie. That was it. And from there, it was like going to to his house, playing with him. He was auditioning people. And the band just happened to be the Headhunters. But it wasn't the Headhunters at the time. It was just the new band he was putting together.
0: So you were the first Headhunter, in, in effect?
1: I don't think so. I think Benny Mopping was. Yeah. Benny, Benny Mopping was, was in the other band be, before the Headhunters. He mm-hmm. kept Benny. Benny went from Sexton into the Headhunters. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I, I mean, I think what happened is the, the people, uh, Paul Jackson, the bass player, he and I were good friends. In the Bay Area, we played, him. he was the bass player for the Headhunters. In the Bay Area, Paul and I, I played in bands with him and I was playing sax and flute and he was playing trombone, okay? So, you know, <laughs> that was a special time and special musicians where you could, you'd have guys that were good on those many type of instruments, you know? So uh, Paul was, you know, it was hard to tell what the succession was because we would just pop up and, and, and in fact, I would go to Herbie's house and he would be auditioning other percussionists while I was sitting there and I made friends with those guys because we were, you know, percussionists are like brothers. They're like, you need each other, you know, just to play together as an ensemble, you need other percussionists. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't any envy or jealousy there. It was just, it was competitive like hell. You know, I was looking at all these guys coming in, you know, playing for Herbie and I got picked. That's 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 like going to the Olympics. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
0: So the first record, um, I mean, did you guys perform much before uh, going in and, and, and doing this record?
1: Yeah. What we did is, you know, that, that, that record has a, a lot of history that I don't think any, that not too many people know or will, I don't know, maybe they'll know about it. Herbie wrote up his memoirs that was published recently. I haven't read it because I'm, I've wrote, written my own memoirs and I don't want to be influenced by anything I read by anyone else. And I, and it's real difficult to release it or to publish it because how can you tell, you know, there are things that I say in my memoirs, they're my memories, you know what I'm saying? So some of the memories, some of the memories ain't that good. You know what I'm saying? Some of the memories, all the memories are good in the fact that they were growing they 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 helped me to grow, and to be a a, a real person. Mm-hmm. But but some of the things I had to endure. Yeah, I don't know. You have to, you know. I you know. It's, I, I, I have to res- I have to res- kind of be laid back and kind of non-judgmental. And 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 sometimes you say things about something that may have happened in the past that just make things worse. You know. You, you know. Like with with black people being enslaved, it's it's important to understand what that was, well, you know, what it really was, not just the surface and not like uh, some television show about it, but understand the deep pain and circumstances that, that surround those kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, in the music world, they have some good things and bad things happening. And I, I think back, if, if the further back you go, the worse the, the treatment. You know, for instance, um, people like uh, um, Jelly Roll Morton and Scott Joplin and Buddy Bolden and even Louis Armstrong or Carl Basie and Duke Ellington—they had to endure a lot of BS. You know, and one—and that meant at the hands, usually, at the hands of who was in charge of the music and business. It's a business. And and we were taken advantage of a lot, a, a, a awful lot, you know. Because if you were black, you you weren't allowed to read or write. If you were enslaved, that was against the law to teach a slave how to read or write. <clears throat> so that meant that if you wanted to publish your own music, you <laughs> you out of luck. But they better not find out that you can read and write. You see what I'm saying? So you have all these obstacles. So all of, a lot of that, a lot of that African American music that was written and composed and performed by black artists, they never saw a dime from it. You see what I'm saying? So there was a great deal of of, of misuse of of others' intellectual property. You know what I'm saying? And I've studied this to a great extent. Now the thing that really hurts is that our, my African American brothers adopted these same type of practices. They learned it and they learned how to abuse others. Yeah. Okay, so I'm a victim of that. I'm a victim of being robbed, you know, by those who say, I mean, I had one very famous man who I wrote some, who I did some composition work with or for, who told me when I questioned him about it, he said, you're just a percussionist. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, you know how much money that is? You're nothing but a percussionist. Mm -hmm. Wow. And believe me, it came from a person like I'm talking about that we're talking about right now, someone on that, on that same level. So, you know, it's, it's, what you have to do is, for me, if I say it, if I come out with it, then there's a large part of the population in the music world is going to say, he's a whistleblower. <laughs> he's a turncoat. He's a t- And then there'll be other people, like the young kids that are coming up, that are gonna thank me for it. They say, we're glad that you had the courage to stand up to the bullshit. You know, so there's that side of it. Now then you gotta look at it, is it balanced? You know, how do I how do I balance this? You know, because you know, even with that record, there's some things that happened to me, like with Watermelon Man. It's one of the most sampled songs that, you know, really sampled a lot. What did they sample? Bill blowing them whistles. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I don't get no money for that. Somebody else gets the money. But it's my shit. Yeah. So that's just an example of what can happen. Now, am I angry? No. You know, because, because if it wasn't for Herbie Hancock, I wouldn't have went around the world like I did. I, I must have went around the world with him five, six, seven, eight times. You know what I'm saying? Well, so,
0: well, well okay. Well, putting the business part of it aside, if, you're, if you can, What what was it like creating this music in studio?
1: Um, uh, Can you describe heaven? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it it was wonderful, man. It was wonderful. It was great. It was great. You know, I I, I mean, even though you may not want to hear this, I had, boy, I, I was getting my ass kicked. I mean, I loved, I loved it at the same time. It was a bittersweet kind of thing. When that record came out, if you read the credits on there, like with Watermelon Man, I didn't even get arranging credit. You understand? You got to see that. Even though I'm there, I'm not there. I'm expendable. You understand? You got to see. Understand, now I've got a better way to put it for you. The, 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 the hand drummer, the hand percussionist that plays the instruments that I have become famous for playing, is the N word of the music industry. We're the last one hired and the first one's fired. Understand that. We're on the bottom of the totem pole, okay? That's a hell of a thing to fight. There were no percussionists getting no jobs when I got that job with Herbie. Not, not Americans, not American born, let alone American black guys, they, who was there? Name me, I would like you to name me three people born in this country that have had a major deal that were a percussionist. Name me three in the history of the recording industry. Name me just three people that were born in this country who have had a major record deal that were percussionists. I think you're going to have a hard time.
0: A major record. Well, I don't know the business side of it. So.
1: Well, major records. Who? Who do you know that's a percussionist born in the United States that's had a major record deal that's a percussionist?
0: Well, James, M. Tumei made a lot of records.
1: Yeah. But M. Tume was a better producer than a than a percussionist now. Okay, I love him Tumei. He played with Miles. I knew him, Tumei. So I know him. Okay, I got you. Okay, that's one. <laughs> I'll give you that one. And that's not a good one, but I'll give you that one. Now, go ahead. Who's next? <laughs>
0: Well, You know, I always thought of Harvey Mason as a percussionist. No, no,
1: no, 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 hand drummers, man! Come on, playing congas and tibales and 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 djembes and it's hard. It's hard, man. Come on. It's yeah, just...
0: I mean, I also had uh, Leonard Gibbs on the show,
1: but but did he have a major record deal? No. Uh, uh, Leonard Gibbs, uh, uh, Doctor Gibbs is one of my best friends in life. We're very close, extremely. You know, we follow each other and we support each other. Also, there's another guy named Munyongo Jackson. You know who he is? No. He's a percussionist. He's a feature percussionist with Stevie Wonder. He's been with Stevie for probably 20-some years. And he's also been with many, 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 many other artists. But he's never gotten a major record deal.
0: Ralph McDonald McDonald comes to mind, too.
1: Well, he's from the islands. Uh, um, uh, uh, Sheila E is one of them okay she's one Bill Summers is one I'll give you a two mate that's three that's not very many
0: No.
1: okay so you have to see that being in that position for me I was helping to blaze the trail so was Doc Gibbs to to try to do to try to blaze the trail to, to open up more opportunities for people who did what we did
0: well, I mean, through this, through this platform here, Bill, I want to help give you the credit that's due. I mean, that's what this is
1: about. I got credit. I got my credits because I do other things that are more important than playing music for money. I play, you know, I'm in a fraternity called Anya. And it's, there's only two fraternities that survived the slave trade. And Anya is one of them. And, and Anya, you play music for God. For the universe you learn rhythms for the ocean you learn rhythms for the river for the brooks you learn rivers you learn rhythms for the for everything green on the planet you learn rhythms that to play for the universe that is much more special than playing a gig okay believe me so i don't i don't i don't really have i love my, my job is my hobby and my hobby is my job and I love what I do, and that's my reward. Because every day I get up, I'm happy. And you can't buy that. You can't buy it. You can't, you know. I, you know. There's a lot of people with money, they ain't happy. Okay, there's a big difference in happy and having money. Now, if you're happy and have money, oh, my God. <laughs> then you're, you're, really, you're really fortunate, you know what I'm saying?